Sounds good. Okay. Hi, everybody. This is Wendy Murdoch, and this is webinars from with Wendy. Um, we took a break for a while. Um, it was uh, I missed everybody. So of course, now we have to start up again and get back to webinars. We have a great lineup for this week, and we're working on guests for the whole month of October. And of course, we're already rolling into November. So we'll just keep going with the webinars because I really enjoy talking with uh, such informative and educated people. And I get such tremendous feedback from all of you that have watched these webinars. So it's just a pleasure to be able to provide you some really high quality and very expert information so that you can do a better job with your course. Tonight, my guest is my dear friend, Dr. Joyce Harmon. And by request, we are doing this webinar on Lyme disease in horses. So welcome, Joyce. Thanks for once again joining me for another webinar. Uh, it's my pleasure, Wendy, and this is certainly a subject near and dear to my heart because we're surrounded by it. I've had it. I've had it. Um, most of my most of my clients' horses have had it. Um, so many horses. It's such a huge problem all yeah. over the world, really. And it's finally being acknowledged that it is all over the world. I can remember for so long that the Europeans were like, "Oh, we don't have Lyme disease," you know. Um, but we saw horses coming from Europe that uh, obviously right. did. So it's, yes. it's, it's been and a actually in, in it, the old, some of the oldest documented Lyme was found in a frozen mummified person in the Alps, um, seven from 7,000 years ago. Oh, so it actually <laughs> maybe originated in Europe and who knows how it got to the States, who knows how, it, you know, it exploded in Lyme, Connecticut, but yes, 7,000 years ago. Wow, okay, well that helps because there is a conspiracy theory and I'm not a big conspiracy theory person. In fact, I barely gave it any weight, but there was a conspiracy theory that there was some lab off the coast of Connecticut, uh, Massachusetts, that area that was working on things and Lyme disease was one of the things that they were working on and it got loose. And so, so I'm really glad that you have this information about the fact that it's been around for over 7,000 years because this is where we really need some good information and solid facts so that we're, we can address it properly. And so that's one of the things that I, I always enjoy having you as a guest because you're you're always so grounded and you bring it right back down to simple and factual and clears out a lot of stuff. Um, so let's get right to it. First, can you just kind of give us a brief overview of the of what Lyme disease is? Lyme disease is a spirochete bacteria that's way too smart and way too powerful in a nutshell. <laughs> um, and it's, its intelligence is what really complicates things, and it truly is an intelligence. It communicates with other spirochetes, it knows how to, interestingly enough, it knows how to adapt to my immune system, or your immune system, or your horse's or dog's immune system, while the tick is still attached. So the tick is taking blood out of the victim's body and it is already, the spirochetes that are in the tick 
are already going, okay, I know what to do here for this particular person or horse. So it's already figuring out your immune system before it gets into you. And then once it gets in, then part of its job is to try and destroy the host's immune system. This is frightening. Which is why no we idea. have... <laughs> Uh, it's a, it's, it's one of these, yes, it's, it's way too clever. And that's one of the reasons that as we, as we talk about how to treat it, there is no one treatment and there is no one thing that we can do because it will sit there and try to outsmart us no matter how we come about. And once it's in the body and suppressing the immune system, ultimately the immune system is what heals us from many infectious things, including the current COVID that's running around. Because if you have a strong immune system, you can likely fight off many, many things, including Lyme, or you can keep it, you can keep it toned down. Lyme, though, takes that immune system. So here's your immune system. You get some Lyme, the immune system goes down, so the Lyme can just. Oops, you froze. An immune system higher and stronger than the Lyme. Can you say that again? You froze for just a minute. You started to say the immune system goes down and then you froze. Okay, and lousy internet connection out here. Yeah. Um, so so we have we have the immune system and we have the Lyme. So. If the Lyme comes in and makes our immune system go down, then the Lyme has free reign, can go around all day long and do exactly whatever destruction it wants. If our immune system is stronger than the Lyme, the Lyme may be there, but it's sitting inside the joints, it's sitting inside the cells, and it's quiet. It actually goes into this kind of dormant form and uh, can show a little bit of a slide about its shape-shifting thing. So what's the definition of a spirochete? Um, a, spiro a spirochete is a type of a bacteria. So let me see my Zoom thing and see about sharing my screen. Great. So this, the spirochete has, as, as a bacteria, it is, if you can, can you see the screen share? Yep. Uh, just, there you okay. go. Got it. Okay. So it has this active kind of spirochete, and spirochete actually means literally spiral. And it has multiple forms that it can exist in, one of which is as kind of a spiral. Then it can change its surface, and there are actually even more, we could, we could spend a whole evening on just the bacteria, bacterial behavior, but that would be really down deep in the weeds and not much fun. But it has the spiroblastic L form. So it gets rid of its cell wall. 
and some of those proteins. And one of the reasons that things like vaccines really don't work well is because the thing is too smart. It can shed its outer shell. And then it can go into this cyst form and th then it becomes dormant. So it just becomes like a round little cyst thing and it's dormant until the terrain is right. So the terrain means the body. Once that immune system is a little bit weaker, once the immune system, this side goes down, those little um, cyst forms change back and they come out and they change into active forms and they go around through the body and suddenly you have you have what looks like it could be a new infection. And in some areas, we can't tell whether it's a new infection or just a resurgence of the old because we have so many ticks and so much exposure. But we can be in a time of the year in which ticks are not around. We can take our horse, put it in bubble wrap and keep every tick in the world off of it and we can still have a relapse. And the relapse is because this immune system, the immune system gets down. So what we have, our job in, in treating it, which is what everybody really wants to know about, is that we have got to make this immune system stronger and keep it there through the horse's life's up and down stresses and, and things that happen in life in order to keep this down here, to keep those spirochetes away. Okay, so I have another so, strange question. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like most diseases, their, their goal is to infect other hosts, like COVID. I mean, in the end, its goal is to spread to other hosts and keep growing, right, if you will, as a virus. But once a spirochete's in our body, if it gets too strong and it kills the host, what's the advantage of that? In other words, it can't get out of our body so are we then it, its end goal and it dies with us? Does that make sense? Well, because it's, because it's in the bloodstream, it can be, it passed along. It, because it's transmitted by blood-sucking insects and its transmission is... Um, you know, we talk about the ticks, but there is, there is quite a bit of evidence that it may be, um, just trying to show my slide again. Um, there's quite a bit of evidence that it is also transmitted by almost anything that could suck blood. Are we talking mosquitoes here? So, fleas, spiders, mosquitoes, mites. Um, and you were asking a little earlier about, about what it is. And so here's just a little sort of a schematic representation of this spiralized um, uh, spirochete. It's a, it's a little, it's a complicated little thing. It's not a little round circle. It's complicated. 
and it is actually closely related to the syphilis bacteria. Um, well, because, because when I think I, of bacteria, I think of antibiotics, uh, you know, that's what antibiotics were developed to cure, right? Um, bacterial infections. Well, yes, antibiotics were developed to kill bacteria. The problem is with antibiotics is that they're very non-selective and they kill basically everything in their path if it is susceptible to it. And so one of the reasons we have lost a lot of the ability of antibiotics to work is because we have overused them and many bacteria are smart. It's, this is not just a spirochete. They look at the communication abilities of this spirochete, but there are communication abilities between organisms in MRSA and in many of our complex, really scary bacterial diseases, those bugs are talking to each other. So it's not just unique to the spirochete that they are capable of conversing. And, and so many of our bacteria that become resistant, and we hear all the time information about resistant bacteria. So part of that is happening because one bacteria comes up and, and meets the antibiotic and it kills it. The next bacteria comes up, meets the antibiotic and goes, oh, wait a minute, I, I don't wanna be killed off, I'm too strong. It goes back and it actually tells the other ones how to save itself, how to become resistant. And so you have this, you know, you have, all, you have all kinds of stuff going on. We are actually more bacteria than we are people or horses. Bacteria and water basically is what you're looking at. Two people and, you know, <laughs> 10 gazillion bacteria. So it's, it's always a little bit of a balance. And we come in with the antibiotics and it's, it's a steam train and the spirochetes kind of go, yeah, okay, you know, a few of us die, but there's plenty of us still alive. So, so it's fascinating because we, we don't typically think of bacteria or spirochetes as being that, or certainly I didn't, being that intelligent. But what you're saying is they're constantly adapting, responding, reacting, morphing, changing to what we do. Yes, they're very busy. Yeah. And they're smart about it. And, and that's the challenge of treating it is that the, the conventional treatment, because it's a bacteria and because many, much, many of them are susceptible to doxycycline, is we give the antibiotic. And if you're a human, you have a choice of 10 or 15 antibiotics that might work. And if you're a dog, you have a choice of, of at least three totally different classes of antibiotics. So if one isn't working, you can go to another. In the horse world, because horses are horses, we really have we have doxycycline, we have minocycline, and we have tetracycline. Those words all sound very similar because they are. So all we've done is we have one class of drug that has sort of three variations. 
and yes, some horses do respond better to one of those than the other, but it's still very limited because it's one class of drug. In the dogs, we could go and say, use some amoxicillin. If you want to give amoxicillin to your horse, don't expect to get any sleep because it has about a four hour, four hour or six hour um, lifespan. So you have to give it four times a day around the clock. You can't miss that 3 a.m. dosing or you have no effect. So amoxicillin is rarely used outside of a hospital setting where they can, they have some poor student that's giving it at 3 a.m. So we are, we are limited in the horse world. In the human world, some of the antibiotics that they're using are incredibly expensive. Yeah. And there is no way that we would even look at the research on that with horses. Horses require for doxycycline 50 times the human dose. So you get 50 tablets versus one tablet for a, uh, a human. So if your only tool is, is a fairly narrow antibiotic, then, and you have a really smart bug and you've given this antibiotic, which destroys part of the immune system because we'll talk about that in a minute, but, or we should, because antibiotics really help destroy all the good bacteria, which is part of your immune system. So if your only tool is doxycycline or that class of drug, and that breaks down part of the immune system, what is happening? Yeah, we killed off a few spirochetes, but we really killed off the immune system. So you'll hear a lot of times, yeah, it's every time I take my horse off doxycycline, he relapses. So six months later, you have a whole population of bugs here that is completely resistant to, to the doxycycline. And it's just waiting for the day that, that the doxycycline's not there and it's gonna come out and just take off and have a field day. So this is where the more holistic approach actually gets you much, much better results. Sometimes it's, it takes a lot more work, a lot more thinking, but it's all about putting the immune system up here and keeping, whoops, immune system. No, no, I forgot which hand was which. There you go, you had it. <laughs> immune system. <laughs> that one, there you go. <laughs> Okay, we want the immune system up here. Right. Um, so, so that's ultimately the goal is for the host to be stronger than the bug. The bug is here, we're not gonna get rid of it. You can go out, the best sort of on-farm control for ticks is guinea hens. But the guinea hens are usually hanging around in one area. They're not out on the trails, wherever you might go. And they aren't necessarily the, let's say, the most neighbor-friendly beasts because no, they make no, a lot of noise. No, we've had some neighborly guinea hens here. And no, they are not the na most neighborly friends. Yeah. World, so, so if you live on a big farm way out in the woods, no problem. If you live on five acres in a housing development, big problem. So... That's, you know, chickens will help, certainly. They aren't as good as guinea hens. Turkeys, wild turkeys will help, but 
they, you know, they pass through your property for a few hours and then they're on to somebody yeah, else. You know, place. like they're not I, I go out to Martha's Vineyard, they have an enormous turkey population that is res residential, like they live on these properties and they have a massive Lyme problem, even though they have a huge turkey population. So, you know, that's when I, they're not, they're not getting it. Say it again. Yeah, they're, they're not, they're, they're not getting it. They, they are not the tick eaters. That's not their primary diet. Guinea hens oh. eat a lot more ticks. Wild turkeys eat a lot of everything. Right. And if there's ticks there, they eat ticks. But, you know, if there's something else that they would really like, they eat that too. Okay. So they're really not very specific to ticks. No, no. They just will eat some. But they're not, they're not going to stick around and do you a lot of good. And then, of course, you have the possum deal. Yeah, somebody just, will possums help? You know, but, but then we have this uh, mixed blessing of EPM and possums and ticks and, you know, like, where do you stand on, on possums? Um, possums are here. They're not going anywhere either. They're not going to eat tons and tons of ticks. And there certainly is. And it almost seems like I'm seeing in my area a lot more EPM over the last year or two, I'm not quite sure why, but um, you're, we're not gonna get rid of possums. And there is some, you know, they talk about even the possibility that barn cats are part of the transmission of EPM. And I think with EPM, we haven't, it isn't 100% just possums, but we are not gonna get rid of the possum population. So, and we don't necessarily want to encourage it for a variety of reasons, because they're gonna, they're, they're going to get into your horse feed. They're going to get into your cat food that you left out by mistake. Um, and so, you know, we, we all live with possums, but we can't depend on them for taking care of the ticks. Because again, they they eat everything. They sure do. They're not going to go in. <laughs> yeah, everything. <laughs> so, you know, ticks are there. Okay, well, I'll eat some, but they're not going to go looking for ticks. Right. And you can go, go and try and spray, but you're, anything that's going to kill a tick um, is going to kill all the other beneficial insects. So it, and the ticks are going to come back three weeks later anyway, because they don't really care that you sprayed stuff. You just happened to kill the ones that were there. The new ones are going to come back in. Somebody's saying um, to remove your native pawpaws from nearby pastures because possums love them, but I love pawpaws. So Oh, you know, it's so a, do I. Yeah, in fact, I'm waiting you know, for the little trees to grow. If um. if you um, if you try to remove, say, your pawpaws, which are a valuable a native plant and a b a wonderful tasting fruit, mm -hmm. they're going to come and eat something else. So yeah. there's berries. There's um, they you know they're going to eat the roadkill. They're going to eat the frogs. They're going to eat whatever's really laying around. So um maybe if you have a neighborhood pawpaw tree and a whole pile of of possums that are feeding on it truthfully you're going to have some raccoons and you're going to have a bunch of other critters that are coming to feed on it as well so leave your leave your pawpaw trees so um and you're probably going to get to this but somebody's uh commented about a horse that was treated with minocycline and he he ultimately did failed and, and died. But her question is, 
uh, if there's co-infections or other issues that go undetected that can occur with Lyme, and maybe you're going to get into that later or uh, you want to address it. Now. Well, that's, that's as good a time to talk about it right now um, because the, the co-infections in the horse world are perhaps a little less well-defined than in the human world, partly because we really don't have tests for them. So in the human world, you hear a lot about Babesia and Bartonella. The truth is you can have things like, um, you can have Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. All these things are transmitted by ticks. And basically, I would say at least twice a year, there is some fancy new tick disease that is discovered and named, but we don't have a test for it commercially. So I usually post those on Facebook and put them up onto, um, you know, in articles or newsletters or something like that. And some of these tick diseases are, are not as common, but that's this year, maybe next year or the year after. Just for, an, for instance, we have this, um, longhorn tick. Yeah. The longhorn tick multiplies what's called asexually. In other words, one tick does not need a spout. <laughs> one tick can turn into a thousand all by itself. <sighs> and each one of those ticks can turn into a thousand all by themselves. They don't yet know, because it's such a new discovery in this country, they don't yet know what diseases that particular tick carries. So they're busy studying it because sometimes there's so many ticks on an individual animal that it can kill it just from taking too much blood. So there's new stuff coming out about ticks all the time and, and new diseases. I think the most obvious kind of co-infections in the horse world actually is EPM. And part of that has to do with EPM in say the whole Eastern half of the United States is endemic, which means that most every horse has been exposed to it. Only about 1% or less actually get EPM as a clinical disease. But if you take blood samples, from 40 horses in a barn, you're gonna find that 90% of them have been exposed at some point in their life. They have antibodies, but they're fine. But again, it goes back to this immune system thing. The immune system gets down, EPM goes out. So Lyme comes in. Remember Lyme knocks the immune system down. So what is likely to happen if you have EPM? It's an opportunist as well. So, so that's the most common identified co-infection that I see. We probably have Bartonella in horses. The Bartonella test, North Carolina um, State University has been doing some research on Bartonella in horses. Currently the test is, you have to take blood samples, large blood samples, three times in one week and send them off and you might have a 30 or 40% chance of identifying Bartonella. It's not such a great- So it's basically not a feasible commercial test at this point. The Lyme test is still measuring the animal's response to the Lyme bug. 
it's not measuring the spirochetes in the blood. So we take a Lyme test and we see that, oh, well, this horse is kind of negative or just right in the gray zone or, you know, in the negative zone, but maybe halfway up or three quarters of the way up to this gray zone or equivocal zone that they talk about. But remember, Lyme bug suppresses the immune system. So if we're measuring the immune system and the Lyme bug is suppressing it, then some of these horses that have been that have had Lyme for a long period of time, they don't have a very good immune system. They can't mount a big response to the Lyme um, bug. So sometimes I get horses that come in that have a very high titer. And some of those horses, many of them are almost easier to treat than the ones that have symptoms, but are very, have a low titer. So, so if they what, have a high titer. I was going to say, is that when we start to think about chronic Lyme disease, that this horse's immune system, that is that what chronic Lyme disease is then? Te technically, the word chronic means anything other than acute. An acute infection is usually considered the first sort of seven days, an acute problem. The first seven days, 10 days, two weeks of a problem is the acute phase. Fall down, break your bones, you know, you are acutely lame <laughs> for yes. those first, you know, couple of weeks. And then your body goes into the healing process. So your broken bone stays as sort of an acute problem because the body will then heal it, hopefully no complications, and it goes away. A chronic problem is after that first couple of weeks of an infection and having it stick around and be present over a long period of time. That is technically the definition of chronic Lyme or chronic anything, chronic COVID. The same idea. It's, it's not those first two weeks. It's the, it's the next three months, the next six months next two or three years. And that's where we have to be building up the immune system. Yeah, so if we're still experiencing symptoms of Lyme disease for any period past two weeks, if you will, then we're into a chronic phase, that our immune system hasn't really been able to mount a defense to knock this thing out. And so now we're just dealing with this sort of weak immune system and this spirochete kind of always kind of pushing it down. And so we have this battle mm -hmm. going on of poor immune system. So, so it sounds to me, just listening to this, is that really what we, what we need to do most is strengthen our immune system because it's the only defense we have. Yes. And strengthen the immune system and then manage stress because stress increases your cortisol levels and higher internal cortisol levels suppress the immune system. So we strengthen our immune system. We do a really good job. Spirochetes down here, everything's all happy. And some huge stressful event happens in life. Immune system goes down, spirochete comes out. 
So part of the long-term management is to recognize stress or anything else that could suppress the immune system. So there are, and individual horses, you have to look at what stresses them. So there are horses where you move a pasture mate, their stress level is up here and their immune system goes down here. And the next thing you know, you have a Lyme flare up. There are other horses that are not stressed until the third week of going to a clinic every week or going to a show every week because they think everything's cool and they arrive at a horse show and they look around and they lay down and have a nap. They're that relaxed about life. So vaccination stresses the immune system because when you give a vaccine, you have your immune system, you give a vaccine, now we're coming in with a vaccine, you are requiring the immune system to respond to that vaccine. So the immune system goes, okay, I've got to go over here and do all of this work to respond to the vaccine. Well, here's our spirochete going. Hmm. I can just come back out and play because the immune system's over here doing something else. So, and it's known that, it, that if, say, if you're going to go to Florida or something like that from the east, the northern east coast, that you don't, even conventionally, you don't give a vaccine three days before you put the horse on the trailer to go down because that trip is a stress. And they know that that vaccine actually could make things worse and the horse could be sick when it gets down there. So that's that immune suppression phase after a vaccination that creates a lot of horses that come back out with Lyme disease. So anything that stresses the immune system, and it will be an individual thing because horses are very individual and their response to life, their response to stress is variable. So they have to learn their own horse. Is it possible given all that we know about Lyme, that someone or a horse could get Lyme, be treated, and actually be cured? Or is that sort of a false reality? That once you have- I think any, any being is capable of being cured. And a, the word cure means you are 100% better from that disease, and in many ways, your immune system, your whole body is stronger for having been essentially exercised. So if you think about, think about little kids, they get colds and snots and flu and bugs and everything all the time. But eventually that immune system gets stronger and stronger and stronger with each cold or flu. And the same thing happens with our baby foals. They get a virus and they get snotty noses and they get over it and then they get stronger and then they don't get those viruses. So our immune system is capable of learning and our immune system is capable of getting stronger. So I forgot where I was going with that actually. Oh, a cure. Um, is it possible to actually okay, have the, exposure and be cured? So a cure is you've had the disease you are now over it completely. So the spirochete is 
out of the picture, off the bottom of this chart, and your immune system is here and maybe even a little stronger because of it. So the next time that Lyme comes along and tries to get in, it's very likely to have a hard time because you really have enhanced your whole body. That would be a true cure. We, we toss the word cure around an awful lot in this world. I mean, in, in the medical world, a lot of times you're considered cured of heart disease if you take statins every day. That's not quite a cure. It's you're taking a drug every day and maybe you're not having a problem, but you are not cured. So the true cure is you've gotten rid of it and it really has a hard time coming back. So yes, you can achieve that cure usually if you catch it in that acute phase and treat it. So in that first seven days, you go, my horse is not well. You call the vet out, they say, well, I don't know whether you have Lyme or whether you have um, anaplasmosis, but we're gonna start you on some doxycycline and you have a very active infection, you don't have any of those suppressed spirochetes or anything around, the doxy comes in, it does its job, and that's the end of the story. That, that particular infection has been aborted and is gone. The problem with Lyme versus say a cold or something like that, is that once it's been around for a while, it's gone into the cells and some of those were not killed off. And the, the real hard thing with Lyme is that, in contrast to say anaplasmosis, where your horse is sick, usually has a fever, could have a fever of 105, you know he's sick. And so you call the vet out and you treat her, and in five days, seven days, it's usually gone. Only about 5% of the horses, maybe 10, will have a chronic anaplasmosis that comes back and, and haunts you. Whereas with Lyme, it's often the other way. But a lot of times, we don't know that they are sick those first few days. Maybe we aren't riding that week. Maybe we're, we're away. Maybe um, we're not doing much. We're just going for a little trail ride, and we don't really notice that our horse is under the weather. And maybe the horse really is not feeling sick. They just slowly have the symptoms come on. And that's how many people experience Lyme. That's, I mean, Al had Lyme disease. You remember, it's quite a number of years ago. The only thing I noticed was that his right hind leg would just drop out. And that was the only sign. There was no behavioral changes. Right. And we tested him and his he was flaming and we put him on doxy. So... You know, it's mm -hmm. so hard to know that. I think that's, that's one of the confounding things about this disease is it's so hard to know whether or not it's what your horse has. And it's, it's almost impossible to know if your horse has been cured. In other words, did he get it again or did he just relapse? And I don't think we have right. a good answer to that, do we? No. And, and the, the blood test that you get back will sort of divide it up into acute, chronic, and vaccine reaction. What I see is all over the map. Horses that have never been vaccinated that show up with a vaccine reaction. Horses that we 
think never had the disease before show up with a chronic titer, but not an acute titer. And then we have horses that have a chronic and acute, which we know is very likely to happen because we can have that fresh, in, fresh bite, fresh infection on top of the old. And so the test that we have for the horses is not even as sophisticated as the human test, which only costs $1,500 and the insurance doesn't usually pay for it. They pay for a, a partial cheaper test. So our test is not that. And yet so many people are like, well, you know, here you have this horse that's, you know, lame off and on, behavior issues, doesn't feel well. You've injected a couple of joints, nothing's really made them better and you take the test and it's not really a very strong positive test and you kind of go well you know i don't think he really has lyme well to me that test is just one of the pieces of all those other symptoms that you just told me about all those other symptoms tell me that that horse has lyme i don't really care what the blood test says and maybe maybe we don't have lyme maybe we have story southern tick associated disease maybe we have the there's a, a midwestern tick disease that looks a lot like lyme we don't have tests for any of those so okay so maybe we have all the symptoms and our test is kind of negative but we still have all these symptoms we have a tick disease we just don't know what the name of it is do you think we'll ever come up with a test that actually can test for the spirochete itself? They have played around with that in the human world. And, you know, they come out, oh, this great new test. And a year later, it kind of disappears. Oh. So it has not proven to be accurate. And part of that reason is, remember, it goes into the cells and it sits here really quietly in that little dormant, form so you come along and you measure the blood i'm not you know i'm not home i you know little kid hiding under the couch i didn't eat that chocolate cake i'm not here so that's one of the reasons that it's going to be very hard to measure a blood test we're going to need to, to have a tissue test that you know and then it's like which tissue are we going to biopsy is it in the joint? We've, they found it in the eyeball in uveitis horses. Is it in the muscle? Is it in the heart? We don't see a lot of heart disease in horses, but we do in humans. But we periodically have horses that die from heart disease. Was it Lyme? We have no idea because heart disease is not that common. Oh. And Kidney then, disease in dogs. Have they, I think they've now been able to start discerning different strains of Lyme. There's 300 different strains of Burgdorfi Borreliosis. Sorry, I asked that question, okay. <laughs> and uh, yes, so worldwide, yes, there are 300 different strains and probably more. That's just when I happened to read the paper about it. And, and I think that that actually shows up as we, as we look at kind of clinical disease with the horse, how do we recognize it? Well, the common symptoms are lameness that moves around that isn't in one place if you have foot abscess it's the right front foot period 
nothing else is going to limp. But with Lyme, it could be the right front foot and you call the vet out and they say, ah, no, it's really the right hind. And then you do something to the right hind and, well, it's actually the left front. Now it's back to the right front. That's a very typical Lyme symptom. It changes a lot. Um, you have a horse that's tired. You have a horse that's grumpy. You might have a horse that actually gets nasty. Um, you have a horse that really has lost his work ethic. They lose their enthusiasm for life. They don't play. That's the classic, if you will, Lyme kind of horse. But it could be the toe dragging. It could be not eating quite as well. It could be some unexplained weight loss because Lyme can hit the gut. I had one that looked like Potomac horse fever, sounded like Potomac horse fever, sounded like a classic Potomac horse fever. Negative three Potomac horse fever tests, positive on Lyme. Oh, wow. So, and responded to doxycycline. Well, so, and then the violent ones that you've seen pockets of. Yes, so that's the, that's the here's this lethargic, I don't care about life horse. And then these, individuals who go ballistic and are dangerous yeah and they can go from an absolutely totally safe beginner horse to unrideable and dangerous and one of the things that i think is happening there is that that may be a different strain of the spirochete because i had for a while i had a pocket in one county where every horse went ballistic. Whereas most of the time it's a horse, one horse here in a barn, one horse here, and it's very sporadic. But there was this whole cake, the whole group yeah. in this one county. So that made me start thinking about different strains having different clinical signs. We don't totally know because we know we can have a neurologic based line that will show neurologic symptoms that look like EPM, but they're negative on EPM. And humans can have, I've had friends that their main symptom was couldn't even get out of bed in the morning. Absolutely semi-paralyzed. Um, and that's a neurologic form. We have a lot of mental, in the human world, there's a lot of people that describe the mental symptoms. In the horse world, we have those mental symptoms. We have some depression. We have lack of interest in life. We have these ballistic horses. But sometimes I wonder if some of the horses that are ballistic aren't having severe brain fog and they can't deal with it because a horse is a flight animal. And they need to be aware and sharp so that they can escape if they have to. Right. And if their brain is in a fog, that's a panic situation for them. So it's very hard to explain the mental aspects of, of Lyme, but they are present in horses. So if I have a horse that's limping and there's no mental change at all, they just limp. Maybe they don't want to jump. Maybe they don't want to land because their feet are hurting. But mentally, they're fine and they're normal. Maybe they don't, they don't want to jump. And you say, well, that's not normal. But in the barn, they're normal otherwise normal and they have other symptoms you know they have a lameness that probably is that leg a joint somewhere in that leg 
if I have a horse that has an, a lameness and a mental change, whether it's ballistic or depressed or just grumpy or something that's different mentally about this horse, maybe they've gotten spooky, not dangerously spooky, but spooky and, and that's out of character. I'm going to look at Lyme first. And then if I need to work up a lameness, they, they can certainly have a lameness workup. So that's the complicated part of Lyme, is sometimes identifying it. And it can be very subtle. It can be subtle for six months until you have that stress reaction that brings it all to the surface. So, um, you know, we're... One of the things that we want to talk about are just some basic things. So if somebody's asking about um, or commenting about lysine, uh, especially if it's uh, Lyme affecting the eyes or leptospirosis uh, causing uveitis. But um, there's, again, I think depending on, from what I'm hearing from you, depending on the symptoms of the horse from a holistic perspective, there could be a wide variety of treatments. There is a huge wide variety of treatments and there are some basic, good basic things that you can do. And then there is the individual, what does that horse really need? So the horse that I'm looking at that's had symptoms for six months or a year, maybe they've been treated with doxycycline a couple of times, they're still symptomatic. We take a Lyme test, it's not very high, tells me their immune system is low maybe even do a, a CBC and look at the white blood cells. A lot of times the white blood cell count will be low. That's another sign of the immune system. Maybe they've had antibiotics, but they haven't had any probiotics at all. We know the immune system is suppressed. Those horses are gonna take a lot of work and it's not gonna be a simple thing of a couple of remedies and maybe an herbal formula. We're gonna have to work on the immune system long-term and build those horses back up I do a lot with Chinese herbs. And so we'll look at some horses, the biggest issue is fatigue. So we get them past some of the, the symptoms and we still have this fatigue. So we're gonna look at building their energy or their Chinese chi using a chi tonic. And then other times we have horses that are still so painful that they're not comfortable. So those horses take a different approach and so it's, it's looking at the horse, having kind of a core of things you can do. And if that does it all, great. And if it doesn't, being able to move on from there and really tailor a whole program to the individual. Lysine is, is a useful amino acid. Is it one of my frontline things for Lyme disease? Probably not. It's not gonna do you any harm to feed it but it's probably not gonna do a huge amount in the overall picture of Lyme. Probiotics, on the other hand, are probably one of the most critical things that you could feed. And you definitely need to feed a good probiotic in order for it to be beneficial. But if you only did one thing, it would be probiotics, in my view, because two thirds of the immune system lines the gut. So if we can repair that gut, from its damage and not just the antibiotics that you gave today or this month, but the antibiotics that it had two years ago when it cut its leg, antibiotics that she had you know, 15 years ago when 
you know, got some other injury and maybe a bunch of antibiotics as a foal when it had pneumonia that you never knew about. Right. So the, the microbiome is the most important aspect of this whole thing. So you hear about prebiotics and probiotics and I get confused by those two terms. What's a prebiotic versus a probiotic? Okay, so the world of probiotics, and, and you can look up microbiome, and there's actually, you look up equine microbiome, and there's getting to be a lot of research on the good bacteria that live in the gut. But a prebiotic is a substrate for the probiotics to live on. So a prebiotic is usually a short chain fiber and there are a variety of compounds that can be a prebiotic, um, including some of the herbs can act as great prebiotics. Um, inulin is a really common prebiotic, but most of these are kind of short chain fibers and the bacteria like to live there and hang out there because they can hang out in the gut, floating around in the, uh, in the fecal material. And so that, it gives them a place to be and it gives them some food and it gives them, it makes them happy basically. So a prebiotic makes good bacteria happy. The probiotic, that our understanding of that is changing rapidly. Once they could read the DNA of the microbiome, the DNA of the bacteria, they can now tell what bacteria live there. In the old days, if you took a fecal sample and you put it in a Petri dish and you cultured it, you grew everything under the sun and you had no idea what was actually really living there. Now they can do these sophisticated DNA tests and tell you, and believe me, the, the names of all these bacteria are beyond my capabilities as an old fashioned practitioner. <laughs> um, but, there are, uh, there is a lot of research looking at different feeding programs and their effects on the microbiome. You can, if you go to England, um, to the equibiome people, you can send your manure over there and get a nice breakdown of many of the bacteria. They aren't even identifying all of them yet, but you will get a, a nice breakdown of what bacteria are in your horse's gut and how much out of balance they are because most horses these days are kind of out of balance. We also are learning, we have fed probiotics for 20, 30 years and us holistic practitioners were called quacks for many, many, many years because we fed these probiotics and they were just going to get digested in the stomach and they couldn't do any good even though we saw clinical improvements when we fed them. Now, cutting edge research is all about the microbiome and how we need to feed probiotics. But what we have learned is that most of the probiotics that live in the gut, permanent residents, they stay there, are actually from the soil. The lactobacilluses that we've been feeding for years and a variety of bacteria we've been feeding for years go in and they help make that, they almost act more like a prebiotic. 
they make that environment good for the ones that live there, but they don't live there. So we feed them every day and we do make a huge amount of improvement, but we are not replacing what's there. And what's kind of interesting is that they're also showing that there are some real strong genetic components and some really strong, what you have at birth may be what you get for your entire life. Um, and it may or may not be as easy to change as we think. Part of that, though, is because we do not have the ability to package up. In order to feed a probiotic, we have to be able to put it into a package. It has to live on the shelf for a period of time. It has to go through the digestive tract through the stomach, which is acidic, and through the small intestine, leaving, depending on what we're trying to treat, small intestine bacteria, stomach bacteria, or large intestine, which is where most of our bacteria are living and doing their work. But there are also bacteria in our eyeballs, there's bacteria in our ears, there's bacteria in our mouth that are supposed to be there. There's bacteria on our skin, and so the research right now, we are so much at the beginning of probably the most exciting aspect of medicine that's coming up because we can, by changing the microbiome or by supporting the microbiome, we have the potential to treat things like MRSA and these really serious bacterial infections that we can't treat any other way. A really good example of that is um, called, it's called C. diff in the human world, and it's a big complication, um, Clostridium difficile, and it's a huge complication of especially older people in hospitals or anybody who's been given a bunch of antibiotics and killed off all of the good bacteria. Well, one of the best treatments for that is a fecal transplant from somebody who has good bacteria and you can turn around a case of, of C. diff in matters of hours. And C. diff actually kills people right, left, and center. That is many, many cases the reason for death in, in an ICU or a hospital setting. So we have done fecal transplants in the horse world and in the cow world since the 30s and 40s and 50s. Really? It used to be, yes, it used to be that you had a really tough case. You'd go and find a, they actually, at the universities, they keep cows that have, you can do this with a cow, you can't do this with a horse. Right. They have a, a nice little thing in their side that you unscrew and you reach in and you get a bunch of rumen material and then you put it down a, a stomach tube to another cow and you save cows right and left and center. So fecal transplant is something, and what you're doing when you're doing a fecal transplant is you are putting, there's somewhere between 1,000 and 5,000 different species in every one of us. And the horses, maybe 10,000. We don't yet know. So when you do a fecal transplant, you are actually transplanting that entire 5,000 different species which is why it's so effective. The hardest thing these days though, is to find a, a really healthy horse to collect it from. But we're way off the top. Well, we're not off the topic of Lyme, 
If we can get fecal transplants from truly healthy horses, the truth is we probably can turn around some of these chronic Lyme cases even more easily. But we're not quite there yet. We're not quite there, but that's the future. All comes back to the immune system. So, so the bottom line is we have to strengthen the immune system to deal with Lyme, whether it's acute or chronic. And if it is acute, also, you know, this kind of complication of giving antibiotics because you got to deal with the acute phase, but then making sure you really build the, the gut. You have to rebuild that gut right away. Yes. And, and so what we should do, though, is talk about some good basic things that people can do because you've got a lot of background now. And if we leave you here, it's kind of like hanging you out and saying, yeah, there's some things you can do for your horse. <laughs> but we're not going to tell you. <laughs> and actually, Wendy, Wendy has cooked up a way to do some little mini consults. Yep. And actually, I'm going to put in that right now. So on, um, on my website, in the store now, it's under veterinary, um, it's called a coterie. And I looked up this word because I was trying to find something that would explain it. Coterie is a small group of interested people. So um, it's where you can spend time with Dr. Harmon. It'll be, it's, there is a fee for this, but we're only taking 10 people and it'll be about an hour, hour and a half. You'll submit your questions to me ahead of time so that uh, Dr. Harmon can prepare and we can see if there's a lot of common questions so that we're not uh, wasting time repeating the answers to questions that somebody asks over and over. So there'll, there'll be that requirement of sending in questions to me ahead of time so we can kind of group them and figure it out. Um, but we have that on my website and this is uh, something we're going to try so that you can get more really great information from these top, top, top clinicians. So, so go check that out on my, on my um, MurdochMethod.com uh, website. Um, it's the same place you went to sign up for this webinar. So, so let's dive into a little bit of um, some, some of the good solid basic treatments that for many horses are all they need to really get them back on their feet. One of the things that I use, and I, I have a section on my website called Lyme disease and or Lyme or something like that. And I've kind of grouped all these products together that I use. And, and I don't use every product in every horse by any stretch of the imagination, but at least by having them grouped that way on the website, it, it gives you the, a way to look and say, and think about what might help with your horse. But one of, one of my big frontline treatments, other than the probiotics that, that we've talked about, and actually one of the exciting probiotics that has come out is by Biostar, and that is on the website, and it is a soil-based probiotic. And it's one of the first true equine-oriented soil-based probiotics out there. Some of the human companies are having soil-based probiotics but they're not nearly so easy to deal with in the horse world. So this, this is one. But beyond the probiotics, another one of my real frontline products is colostrum. And colostrum comes from cows. You only want to use colostrum from solid, good, grass-fed cows that are not stressed because mm -hmm. colostrum is very high in immune factors and it works inside the gut 
on that gut immune system. So it's the, the company that I use is Biostars and it's, that's also on the website. The interesting thing is, and I believe Wendy's horse is one of these, this little tiny scoop that you'll get is sometimes even too strong for a horse and you get them having a little too much energy. And I think that's because it acts as a really strong chi tonic, which builds up the immune system. So if your horse gets a little too energetic, just cut the dose in half. Um, I think, as I recall, Al got a little bit too strong. He, it, yeah, he would take an hour and a half just to be able to have a conversation at full speed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I would say maybe 10% of the horses, maybe 5%. It's not a huge percentage, but it's, it's a nice thing to be aware of because it really, it's really effective. Um, but that really works on supporting the immune system and building some of that chi because so many of these horses really have a lack of energy, a lack of chi. They really just don't feel like, like participating in life. Um, I use a lot of Chinese formulas. Those, are, those really need to be more prescribed based on what is happening with your horse because some of those are chi tonics, some of those are pain relieving, some of those are building up the, the, the liver system. So those are really more consult type of formulas. But um, Hillary Self and I put together from, she, she is the Hilton Herb, the owner of Hilton Herbs. We put together a formula, to, a set of two formulas for um, treating Lyme. And the idea behind the two formulas is that we use one for a month and use another one for a month and you're alternating because even with herbal formulas, remember how smart this stupid bug is. Well, it's not a stupid bug, it's a smart bug. But we, they, they will adapt to herbal formulas as well. So some of the human products I use are alternating. So we created that same alternating system so that you have spirochete killing herbs in both formulas, but you have a completely different formula, two different formulas. So the one that's called first response, usually start with that. It's got more gut support herbs because a lot of those horses are also going to be on antibiotics in, those, in that first time period. The aftercare is a little bit more of a chi tonic, little bit more building the system back up. So if your horse though is just totally lethargic, you might wanna start with the aftercare. And the nice thing about it is that the formulas were designed to be really safe to use. And it's not, if you make a choice that, that may be not the absolute best choice for your horse to start with, it really isn't gonna matter because some horses might benefit more starting with that chi tonic second formula, but they're going to get the beneficial, beneficial effects doing it either way. So that gives you something. It also gives you a formula to use as a preventative or as something to have on board on some of these properties or in some parts of the country where spring and fall, the ticks are just everywhere. And 
And I think in those kind of situations, we actually really need to, to have something already on board because otherwise we are going to have a new infection. So this way, this, the tick bites, the spirochetes go in and hopefully they get killed right away. And we keep that immune system really strong. So and that's one thing you can do in the long term once you've treated your horse is to say, okay, ticks are really bad here in May. So April 25th, you start on one of the tick X formulas and you go all the way through to June 15th and you cover that time period. And if your time period is, starts in March, you start a couple weeks before that. Watch your weather patterns because sometimes we have an early spring, sometimes we have a late spring. And that is changing and it's all over the map these days. And we can have spring here in the end of February and we can have spring here not until almost the first of May. This year, I think we had a frost that killed everything in Mother's Day. Uh, which Yeah, well, it was a freeze. It wasn't even a frost. It, yeah, it was a freeze. And yet we've had other years in which um, we've had green grass growing the last week in February. And the ticks coming out in March and having a field day. So um, we've, we've kind of gone over our time a little bit, but um, mm -hmm. somebody's asking, you know, her horse is dragging his back toes and she's wondering if a test would help. I, I, again, I think, uh, I think you've kind of covered this a bit. The test could be equivocal. It couldn't, it, but the symptoms are the thing to really pay attention to. Um, is, yeah, it, and is it worth getting a test, I guess? is. In many cases, I think it's useful to have a test because it gives you a little bit of an idea of where you are. Do you have that really high, strong immune response like Al had? Right. And really, we've treated Al once and we've repeated it a few times over the years, but we haven't had to work a lot with him. His immune system was strong. He made a big, high number. You have symptoms and you have a low number. You go, okay, I probably have a lot of work to do here. So that's the, one of the benefits of doing the test. It'll make you crazy if you do it every year because you may have your horses perfectly sound, perfectly happy, perfectly healthy, competing every other weekend, and you get a high test and you get all depressed. Yeah. No, I, I know that from my own health issues that, you know, I remember you saying, look at the patient, not the number. <laughs> yes. So it's just a, it is one data point and there's a whole lot of other data points, mental and physical. Right. So, so I think that um, somebody's saying they've used both your Tixac X formulas to great success. And I just wanted to, to uh, recount a little story. When we were at Equine Affair in Massachusetts a number of years ago, and you just come out with the Tick X formula. And I had a client there and I'd worked with her horse and I basically told her to get rid of the horse because it was so difficult. And she got the tickex at Equine Affair, went home, and while we were still at Equine Affair, she came back in two days and said her horse was so different. So, you know, that was a horse that uh, just made a huge turnaround from, uh, you know, a horse that was really, in my opinion, not safe um, to, a, to a completely different personality. 
Um, and so I think that's why one of the things that's so difficult with Lyme disease is that there's so many different presentations. There's, there's so many subtle changes that might kind of accumulate over time. And we're suddenly going, wait a second, my horse isn't right. Or like Al, the incredibly subtle signs of just dropping his hind leg out with no personality change whatsoever. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that makes Lyme disease such a difficult thing. And, and not to mention the complications, the, you know, the add-ons, if you will. And we see that in people like you've had, you've had Lyme and how many other things with Lyme? yeah <laughs> yeah and there's there's so there's so much variety and so one of the best ways to back into a diagnosis is you can't put your finger on it but you know they're not right or you have tried things that um that should work but don't so a joint injection on the hocks should work, but you find that it, nothing really happened. And um, then you go, okay, why is this not working? Joint injections should work. They actually are quite effective. Yeah. So it didn't work because that was not the real origin of the problem. And one thing I forgot to mention is that to try and help keep some of the ticks off your horse is a product called Ticks Off, which makes the hair kind of slippery, actually can be quite slippery, and the ticks have a much harder time sticking to the hair. So it's a totally non-toxic. We didn't really talk about trying to keep ticks off, and a lot of the natural sprays, they're not gonna stay on long enough. So the ticks off, you can actually, it's actually more like a, um, a hair conditioner. So the, the coat starts to stay quite slick. And I have had clients who say they can go out for a ride in tick country and come back and maybe only have one or two ticks and they uh -huh. would have had 50. That's really impressive. And then um, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, you know, when you talk about managing stress, um, and somebody else just popped it in the chat here is using surefoot pads to help horses manage stress. Yeah, absolutely. You can do that. And the interesting thing is sometimes horses with active Lyme will actually refuse the surefoot because they are not comfortable on their feet. And foot pain itself can be a piece of it. Sometimes that the surefoot can make them more comfortable. But that's another way to back into a diagnosis. Let's say you have a horse that's used surefoot and now suddenly they don't want it. Yeah. That's a clue that something is internally not quite right. Or you offer the surefoot and they're, they're really reluctant because most horses will get on it. Some of the right. EPM horses are reluctant at first because it's too, it's too unsteady for them. They're just not ready. So right. you go, okay, that's another, it's another data point. So you go, okay, this is not just a lameness. There's something else going on here that may be more systemic. So you check that box and you check the, the behavior box or you check the mental box or a digestive thing and you start to go, you know, this is not, this is not just a lame problem. Oh, and, a, and one other data point is my horse doesn't train well. Um, 
the number of horses I've seen as a riding instructor where it's like the horse just doesn't change. It doesn't get better. It doesn't, it's stiff and woody um, in its movements. And that's, that's another data point is my horse isn't moving the same. Yes. Any, any generalized alteration, generalized willingness to work. You know, last year, you, you know, you were riding last year, you were having a great time. This year, everything seems to be a struggle, like you're going through molasses. It's like, okay, something is wrong here, and it's not a limping leg. It is a body system issue. Yeah. Well, Joyce, this has been, again, another really educational webinar, and I've once again learned something that I had no idea that ticks have been around for 7,000 years. You started out with that, still blew my mind. Spirochete. Spirochete, sorry. Spirochetes. Yeah. Um, have probably been around. Ticks have probably been around for a million years. Yeah, probably. I think you're right on that one. But spirochetes. Um, and you know, this has been great information. I want to thank you once again. I know that you're going to be coming back. Um, is it October? What's, do you have the date? We're going to talk about CBD oil. Yes, or, or can, cannabinoids and hemp in horses. There you go. Cannabinoids and hemp. Yeah. In I better I better get the topic right. It'll be it'll be posted up on yes, my it's uh, November November fourth. Oh November fourth. Okay, so we'll be getting that yes. one up on my website. So you just remember you can find this and all of the um, webinars on my Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. I'm not used to saying the end of the webinar. <laughs> um, and just check out the um, the coterie we're going to have with Dr. Herman. It's limited to ten people, so if you're interested, make sure you sign up right away. You'll be sent a link to join the meeting. It's a, um, it requires registration, but you'll be sent a link to join the meeting and we'll see you, um, see you there. It'll be a great fun. Um, and everybody's been great. They really appreciated your information, Joyce. It's as always very educational and informative and an easy way to learn. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, you're welcome. It's great fun. Yep. Good to share. All right, everybody. See you later. Tomorrow's Bob Bowker, three o'clock. So tune in for that one. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Have a good night. Yeah, he's fabulous. Yeah. Yep. Bye.